0: Chapter 10 of Tales of the Trail by Henry Inman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Judge Lynch's Court at Whooping Hollow. Part 1. Whooping Hollow is the uneuphonious name of a mining camp in the very heart of the Taos Range, or rather was, for it has been expunged from the map these twenty five years and but few of the present generation in new mexico are aware that such a place ever existed it was almost inaccessible so awfully abrupt and broken were the bare granite ridges surrounding it out of which the circumscribed valley in which the town lay seemed to have been literally scooped when the rocks were plastic titanic hands holding the scraper and the lightning the propelling power how the place received its strange appellation was a mystery even to the majority of the miners who worked there for nearly five years with picks shovels long toms sluices and other appliances for extracting the ore from the refractory rock the quantity of the precious metals shipped during that period made the camp famous and resulted in building up a town of rude shanties and dugouts which at the height of its prosperity numbered over twelve hundred souls but you cannot find whooping hollow on any modern map for it played out in less than six years from the date of the discovery of gold there though several fortunes were mined in that time and made by traffic the specialty of which was bad whiskey there was a legend current in the early days of the valley's occupancy that was honestly believed in which affirmed that the first party of prospectors consisting of four or five men all tennesseans who entered the great canyon in their search were rewarded well for their pains finding plenty of water game fuel together with other necessaries in the prosecution of their vocation a beautiful place for their camp lots of silver and gold in paying quantities were scared out of the gulch to which they never returned by an unearthly screeching seemingly emanating from a human throat Its ghostly owner, they declared, visited their camp every night about eleven o'clock, and on the top of a timbered knoll, where they could plainly see it as the moonlight sifted through the scattered pinions and dwarfed cedars, took its stand, setting up its blood-curdling cries, which it continued with short intervals of cessation until daybreak. Those men, it was alleged, were a very ignorant and superstitious set, who after three nights of their weird experience could bear it no longer and were absolutely driven away through fright of course they told others of their rich strike not forgetting to mention the haunt of the place as they called it but these others old mountaineers not fearing any disturbance from the moonlight spectre went there established their camp to which hundreds soon flocked calling it whooping hollow in derision of the tale told by the alarmed tennesseans which name it retained during its whole existence and was known and recognized by that as a post office on the mail records in washington in all probability what the men really heard was the mottled or american screech-owl which makes a plaintive noise and a peculiar sound during part of its mournful notes like the chattering of teeth keeping up its alternating whooping and moaning all night it loves to perch on some blasted tree in the moonlight and the disembodied form seen by the superstitious miners must have been a shattered and denuded pinion on which the nocturnal bird sat that escaping their vision in the daytime was exaggerated by their frightened eyes at night into the haunt of the place but this is not a ghost story and the reader will pardon the digression the region in which whooping hollow was situated is the roughest and to employ a mining phrase the lumpiest portion of the whole taos range it is a deep gulch in the strictest interpretation of the word formed by two lofty divides whose crests tower skyward from their bases more than three thousand feet which themselves are over five thousand feet above the atlantic level and the distance across the narrow valley at its widest part scarcely three-quarters of a mile the angle of the slope of the two opposing mountains is a little less than thirty-five degrees making their sides as may be inferred very precipitous the town's era of prosperity was long before the days of railroads in that portion of the continent and such feats of engineering as have been accomplished since in the way of hogbacks loops and tunnels were not dreamed of as among the possibilities of mountain travel nor was there even a wagon road to whooping hollow such a thing would have been regarded equally as difficult and expensive as the wonderful achievement of the atchison topeka and santa fe in climbing the raton range a dozen years later everything was packed into the place on mule-back at a minimum cost of twenty-five cents a pound whether the simplest necessaries of life or a sawmill and the zigzag trail the sure-footed beasts were compelled to travel up and down the fearful slopes of the great divides to get in and out of the rocky streets of the narrow town made one dizzy to look at the rude collection of shanties through courtesy called the town of whooping hollow was built on one side of a little creek which ran at a fearful rate at the bottom of the gulch whose waters boiling and foaming like all mountain streams rushed over and around the immense boulders with which its narrow bed was choked while on the opposite side immediately facing the principal street extending for miles both ways on the hill the mining claims were located the houses were in most instances mere shells constructed of rough slabs while a few were of hewn logs presenting a relatively neat appearance The roofs of all, however, were flat and covered with earth. They rose one above the other like a flight of stairs, so that one could easily step out of his door upon the top of his neighbor's dwelling below, so precipitous was the side of the mountain on which the place was of necessity laid out. The town consisted of four streets, one devoted entirely to business, the other three to residences only. There were five stores, whose stock was that of character known throughout the West, and in the mountains as general. That is, their proprietors almost literally kept everything, from a toothpick to a steam engine, or from a shoestring to a silk dress. The place boasted also of twelve banks, of deposit only, Faro and Monte. For the unfortunate individual who once laid his money on the green-cloth tables of these institutions rarely saw any of it again. It was permanently invested. Of saloons, too, Whooping Hollow had its full complement. I think there were thirty at one time, and their owners were not obliged to contribute anything to the support of the town, for as to municipal expenses there were none yet the discipline of the place was fair to say the least the ratio of violent deaths to the number of inhabitants was not nearly as great as in any of the eastern cities and as to thieving or burglary such crimes were as rare as a church service which whooping hollow never had during the whole period of its existence of course such a unique condition of morality is easily accounted for judge lynch's court was the only tribunal for the trial of offences against the peace and dignity of the town and from its decisions there was no appeal besides society there was so constituted that it could condone a murder if there existed the slightest shadow of extenuating circumstances but it would never forgive the unlawful appropriation of another's goods particularly of horses horse-stealing being the unpardonable sin as it is generally on the frontier the prompt remedy for which was a short shrift and a long rope notwithstanding the fact that perhaps there were hundreds of men in whooping hollow to whose ears the shrill whistle of a bullet would sound sweeter than the soft notes of a flute still their general good nature when sober and principle of honor among thieves kept them within bounds occasionally very naturally too there were desperate fights over the gambling tables in the hells which abounded in whooping hollow and frequently an outrageously obstreperous individual full of bug-juice as the vile whiskey dispensed in the saloons was called would get a hole drilled into him by a number forty four revolver ball or his vitals carved with an eleven inch bowie but arrests were rarely made in quarrels of that character because extenuating circumstances generally existed often under the excellent care of the skilful doctor a former army surgeon who had established himself there the belligerents would recover from their fearful encounter but oftener took up their last claim of six feet by two in the bone orchard as the cemetery on the timbered knoll where it was alleged the haunt was originally seen had been dubbed by the citizens of whooping hollow the average miner and the miner's claims radiated from the place in all directions at varying distances some as far as thirty miles would come into town once a week at least generally sunday and if he had been fortunate in his diggings would make a break for the first gaming-table in his way If he, by any chance, won, he would make the rounds, which in local parlance meant stopping at every saloon to treat the crowd of thirsty bummers always present on such occasions, and sometimes provoking a quarrel with the first man who got in his way. But if losing, the rule generally, he went drunk and sulky back to his claim, consoling himself with the hope of better luck next time and so the lives of the majority were passed not a few died with their boots on in some drunken row with their friends to whom they had offered a real or fancied insult as in all mining camps at the period of whooping hollow's boom a most heterogeneous crowd composed its residents and transient occupiers in its rough but busy streets you met all shades and nationalities the tall plodding yankee fresh from the hills of new england green as a gourd but with sufficient gall to extricate himself from any little difficulty he might stumble into the active restless texan the jauntily dressed commercial traveler with his samples of bad whiskey and worse cigars the swarthy mexican with his broad sombrero scarlet sash and irrepressible that darker specimen of the genus homo the negro and last of all the heathen gine nearly every state had its dozens of representatives in the motley group of individuals who had come to seek their fortunes in this new el dorado It was a grand place to study character, to learn how all the finer attributes of man may be completely crushed out of his nature by years of adversity, and how, under the same circumstances in others, all that is noble and pure predominates, no matter how hellish or pestilential, morally, may have been their surroundings. The principal store of the town was owned and conducted by Jemuel Nags a man of reputable character an old plainsman and mountaineer full of enterprise and grit the acknowledged leading citizen of whooping hollow in every community whether the most enlightened or barbarous there is always to be found some individual who by his force of character and other inherent attributes becomes foremost in all that concerns the welfare and prosperity of the people who compose it and this was the role that jemuel nags played in the rough mining camp of whooping hollow he was a veteran miner too of california in forty nine fraser river in british columbia in fifty eight and pike's peak in fifty nine but having amassed several thousand dollars during his erratic wanderings in eighteen fifty nine he abandoned the pick and shovel for the more pleasant occupation of keeping a general miners store whose necessities none knew better than he so he opened up in whooping hollow in the days of its incipiency he was a man about fifty years old rather slender than otherwise but there was something in his air and features which distinguished him from common men the expression of his countenance was keen and daring his forehead was high and his lips thin and compressed indicating great determination of will One would not have hesitated to confide in his honor or courage, but would have been extremely reluctant to provoke his hostility. He always wore a dark gray navy shirt, to the collar of which was attached a curious button. Around his waist was tightly buckled a broad leather belt, in which a formidable-looking bowie knife was struck to be used as is usual with all frontiersmen for various purposes indifferently to kill a man cut food pick his teeth or for whittling when he had nothing else to do matters progressed very smoothly in whooping hollow for two or three years under the watchful care of nags and a few others of like sterling character who will be hurriedly described as they appear in this sketch but at the end of that period a pall suddenly fell on the place Men would leave for a visit to some neighboring camp or on a hunting expedition and never be heard of again. Sometimes it would be one of the best citizens who would disappear all at once, the number of instances of this character in one year aggregating twenty. At last the whole town became aroused, and suspicions of foul play in the matter entered their heretofore apparently too lethargic brains no one felt safe and when to cap the climax as it were jemuel nags was declared missing an investigation was immediately but secretly instituted it then developed that with one or two exceptions all of those who had disappeared had left whooping hollow for sandy bar the nearest mining camp sixty miles distant and to which there was only one possible trail over the divide that the parties had been murdered was now conceded, but upon whom could suspicion rest, and where on the lonely route were the damnable deeds committed? These were the questions discussed one evening by half a dozen prominent men of Whooping Hollow, who had secretly met in a room about a week after Jemuel Nags failed to return at the appointed time. He was last seen on the day of his departure from town by some reputable miners, who had met and conversed with him on the trail to Sandy Bar, not more than twelve miles from his home. He had never arrived at Sandy Bar, however. That fact was ascertained to a certainty through diligent inquiry there. It was only a small camp of less than three hundred people, and he was as well known there as in Whooping Hollow. About halfway between Whooping Hollow and Sandy Bar, there was a narrow rocky valley known as Willow Springs Gulch, abandoned long ago as a mining region, the ore in that vicinity having consisted of a series of small pockets only, which were naturally exhausted in less than six months from the date of their discovery, and that was more than two years before operations had begun in Whooping Hollow but the place was still famous for its pure water, which gushed out of the indurated wall of a small canyon in a stream as large as a man's arm, clear, cold, and sparkling, the best water to be found in the whole sixty miles ride. The entrance to the rocky canyon was almost concealed by a dense growth of mountain willows, hence the name, but the beautiful spring was the only redeeming feature in the otherwise barren and desolate landscape near this lonely spot stood a small adobe cabin or rather hut the only habitation anywhere within twenty miles of the dreary place its sole occupant was a miner ostensibly who pretended to own a claim near sandy bar but it was alleged that no one ever saw him work it Yet he always apparently had sufficient money to supply his wants, ever paying gold for his purchases. He was a tall, angular, villainous-looking specimen of humanity, rough, illiterate, dialectic in his talk, but possessing the physique of a giant, as courageous as a she-grizzly with cubs, a dead shot with the revolver, and withal believed by everyone to be a desperado in the most rigid acceptance of the term viewed superficially for nobody at whooping hollow or sandy bar knew anything about his antecedents he was apparently without one redeeming quality except that he was kind to his dog a mangy spotted wicked-looking yellow cur with only one eye and tailless fit companion for such a surly disposed master this strangely mysterious being with whom no one had any more intercourse than was absolutely necessary and that confined to the limited conversation required when he entered stores to make purchases lived a supremely isolated sort of an existence for he was as carefully avoided by every one as were the rattlesnakes that infested the rocky arroyos of the bald bleak hills where his hut was located upon him then black suspicion naturally at once fell so prone is human nature to be guided by visible forms though there was not an inkling of proof either circumstantial or direct upon which to base this man's guilt fortunately they who were quietly investigating the cause of the disappearance of emuel nags were men of excellent judgment cool calm and deliberate in their proceedings but terribly in earnest they had received their education in the great school of the world they knew that suspicions were not facts that appearances are too often deceiving and they were nonplussed because convincing proof was not forthcoming to convict the only man upon whom a shadow of probable guilt could fall this strange creature about whom nobody knew anything was called whenever reference to him became necessary often now for he was in every one's thought a murderer willow gulch jack because his real name was not ever known adopting the indian's method of nomenclature and associating him with his locality it may readily be inferred that it was only his villainous aspect and isolated life that brought this wholesale condemnation upon him for he had never been guilty of any disreputable act that the people could discover and now they left no stone unturned to find something against him but they avoided and suspected him as a sheep raiser does a strange cur in his neighbourhood consequently a system of espionage was inaugurated on his movements but nothing as yet had been discovered to cast a shadow on his everyday life he knew that he was suspected and watched so for some special reason which had not yet been made clear to the people of whooping Hollow, he was now almost constantly absent from home passing his time on the trail between his cabin and the top of the divide above the town always accompanied by the one-eyed tailless dog his constant companion his enemies were aware of his perambulations but could not divine the cause and the mystery connected with this isolated life seemed to them more impenetrable than ever of course they did not hound his every footstep because as they reasoned that would give him no opportunity to commit himself they merely adopted such precautionary measures as would prevent his escape from the country and that would permit them to arrest him at any time they wanted to if he attempted to leave or whenever they had gathered sufficient proof to convict him which as yet seemed as remote as ever flattering themselves all the while that he was unconscious of their intentions one day, about two weeks after the investigation of the cause of the disappearance of Yemuel nax had been fairly inaugurated, this Willow Gulch Jack, as I shall have to call him, in the absence of the knowledge of his real name, rode quietly into Whooping Hollow, dismounted, tied his mule to a stump in front of Tom Bradford's log cabin, walked up to the door, gave it a heavy kick, and waited until it was opened his cur at a word from his master lying down close to the mule tom bradford was a veteran miner one of the best citizens whooping hollow possessed whose opinions on important matters were generally regarded as conclusive such faith the curiously assorted people of the town placed in his excellent judgment which fact jack was fully aware of bradford himself came out on the porch in response to jack's tremendous knock but when he saw who his visitor was, a shade of evident displeasure passed over his countenance, for he too, although he knew that not a scintilla of proof had been forthcoming after all these days of investigation, believed in this man's guilt. Tom Bradford regarded Jack intently for a moment, as if wondering what to say or do. So astonished was he at his presence, but Jack broke the painful silence in a few words— I say, Tom Bradford, nobody was mistered out there in those days. I have Kim to talk to ye. I knows it's yers unexpected, but I don't care. And what I have to tell, I wants to tell ye where no one can hear winds. Have ye such a place where winds can converse undisturbed? Bradford eyed Jack closely for a few seconds. Not that he had any fear of the man, villainous as he looked and giant that he was then told him to follow as he led the way through the cabin door they passed out of one room into another at the rear there were only two apartments in the building where he pushed a dilapidated rush-bottomed chair toward jack himself taking another and throwing his feet upon a rickety table the only other article of furniture in the rude log den He pulled his pipe out of his pocket, filled it, lighted it, and handed another to Jack with the tobacco from a box nailed against the wall within easy reach. He gave a few vigorous pulls at his own, emitting a cloud of smoke that almost enveloped him, then, fixing his eyes on his unwelcome visitor, said, "'Now, then, I am ready to hear what you have to communicate.' "'Tom Bradford?' began jack upon this invitation i knows that i have been spected of these young murders what have took place and i knows that i have been hounded and watched which you had no idea i knowed but you knows tom bradford where ain't no shadder can be proved agin me i am aware of that said bradford hurriedly and although you are and have been the only man in the mind suspected we folks here are determined that no innocent person shall suffer upon mere suspicion and under the excitement of the moment we are also determined that no guilty party or parties if there be more than one person implicated shall escape the swift summary punishment the hellish acts deserve we have no organized courts here but organize them as we need them ourselves no mere technicality will save a rascal either as it does sometimes in what are called civilized communities tom bradford continued jack you nor no one else has ever seen me a loafin' round saloons nor gambling halls and no one ain't ever seen me drunk nother have they i knows my looks is agin me but looks ain't nothin nor no judge to go by i ain't no handsome man nor sought any claim ter such i unse took der prize fer grinnin to a horse-collar an her county fair way back in old kaintuck when i were young at this admission a change that was evidently intended for a smile suddenly crept over jack's face as he opened his ponderous jaws but the effect made his cavernous mouth, which literally stretched from ear to ear, look as if it had been made by a broad-axe at a blow. While he continued, as the paroxysm caused by the remembrance of his youth passed off, "'I have been doing some detective work myself, and what I have discovered is what has bring me here to talk with you about.' it were all a accident though and if it hadn't a been for that there armory dog o' mine i wouldn't a found out nothin'. you un's all be surprised as i was when you come to learn who the murderer for certain is in their first place i know them folks as were missin' never got past my cabin Bradford looked Jack suddenly in the eye, as if to catch the true meaning of his last assertion. But Jack, seeing that he was misunderstood, became a little heated and in a most emphatic manner said, "'Never reach thar, Tom Bradford, as I want you to understand.' "'Now, I want you to tell me,' he continued, to getting more excited, "'how many cabins, where folks as lives, I means, course there's lots of abandoned ones.' "'Twek toop and holler and mine.' "'Well,' replied Bradford, in response to Jack's interrogatory, "'there are but two—Cal Joneses and Ike Podgetts. Why?' do not you see, Tom Bradford? If them is missin' never got to my cabin, they must have got by one of them others.' "'What do you mean?' asked Bradford, looking up excitedly into Jack's face. "'I means just what I says,' replied Jack, gazing as earnestly now into Bradford's. "'If a man leaves up holler for Sandy Bar, he ain't got off under trail, can he? "'There ain't but one trail is there, and if he don't come back and don't go ahead, "'he must a stopped somewhar betwixt ther two places, mustn't he? "'And if he ain't heard of for a long while, he must a stopped for good, eh? Huh? "'Now, do you understand, Tom Bradford?' and jack emphasized his remark by bringing down his huge fist like a sledge-hammer on top of the rickety old table right in front of bradford chapter ten part one